You're listening to TIP. The whole point of the book is I want this to be able to tell you everything you need to know to get into real estate investing. So my goal, Patrick, is if you knew nothing about real estate investing, maybe you just sold your tech company, you're sitting on tens of millions of dollars, you want some diversification. How do you do it? So not knowing anything about real estate, where do you start, right? And I really do believe this book step-by-step is going to tell you what you need to know. In this week's episode of Real Estate 101, I sat down to talk with James Nelson about his newly released book, The Insider's Edge to Real Estate Investing. As opposed to many of the fix it and flip it, get rich quick real estate books available, The Insider's Edge to Real Estate Investing provides readers with really actionable steps from building the right team to sourcing opportunities to raising capital. James is principal and head of Avison Young's Tri-State Investment Sales Group in New York City, and during his 25-year career has sold more than 500 properties and loans totaling over $5 billion. James is also a real estate investor and has launched two real estate funds with total capitalizations of over $350 million. He's really passionate about helping others achieve real estate success and offers regular training through his podcast, The Insider's Edge to Real Estate Investing. I'm really looking forward to reading James's book, and this interview gave me a sneak peek into some of the biggest takeaways from it. And so without further delay, let's jump into this week's episode with James Nelson. You are listening to Real Estate 101 by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Patrick Donnelly, interview successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Welcome to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Patrick Donnelly. And with me today is a really special guest I'm excited to have on. He's written a book called The Insider's Edge to Real Estate Investing, James Nelson. James, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Patrick. Really appreciate you having me on your show. Yeah, I'm excited to get into, into your book. As I said, you've, you've written the book. It comes out, I believe, this month in January. We're recording it. Talk to us about your career trajectory and what it's been like that it's given you the knowledge and the experience to write this book, which I heard somebody call it the definitive guide to commercial real estate investing. Thank you. And that was kind of whoever said that. And I hope that'll be the case. It is coming out at the end of January. McGraw-Hill will be publishing this. And the hope is that this will be the roadmap for anyone who's looking to get into investing. It will also even help veterans who've been at this for a while to step up their game. I know we'll get more into the lessons in the book, but kind of to go back to my story and how I got into this, what I would say is that it was mostly luck. I graduated in 1998 from Colgate. And at the time, I didn't even know real estate was a thing. Colgate, you know, liberal arts school. I was an English major and all of my friends had investment banking jobs and became pretty clear that I needed to get a real job. I thought initially maybe I'd move out to the West Coast and maybe work on movies or something like that until I found out that they didn't really supply a a salary and I didn't have any money saved up to just go and and do it on a whim. I went up to the Career Service Center late in spring and found a application for a job, which was an associate position uh, at Mastinaco Realty Services, which was co-founded by another Colgate alum. That was the reason why they had offered the position there. And this was, again, to be a sales associate at a real estate brokerage firm. 
I went in and met with them. They flew me into New York. So again, out of upstate New York, came in their office. It was a small office, but it was on Park Avenue. Very impressive. And you know, I really knew nothing about the business. What I can tell you is I had a very good gut feeling about the place and about the founders. And that's certainly one of the, the lessons in my book is it's really about the people and who you deal with. But we do laugh about it years later because I found out, this is probably years afterwards, that there was only two people who applied for the job as sales associate, and I was their second choice. But I also, I guess, had the last laugh because the, the their first choice, he flamed out after six months or a year, and I went on to spend you know pretty much the first 17 years of my career with them. They were kind enough to make me a partner and... Along with them, we sold our company to Cushman and Wakefield about eight years ago. And what was really impressive at the time was by the time we sold to Cushman, we were selling three to four times the amount of properties as the next brokerage firm in New York City. And you can imagine in a competitive market like New York, how difficult that would be. And a lot of credit to the founders of Massey Knackle, Bob Knackle, Paul Massey, and that they had an incredible business plan, which was they divided up the city into territories. And they said, look, we're going to go represent owners in the sale of their properties. And they really focused on this kind of small to mid-sized buildings because the big globally traded firms, they were out selling the skyscrapers, but they found that the majority of these transactions, which were kind of in the $10 million and under space, was really no one had a dominant market share. And that's where the majority of transactions were occurring. We had a great business focusing, again, by territory, representing owners in the sale of their properties. And we, we had a great run. I had three great years at Cushman and then uh, got this great opportunity from Avis and Young about five years ago to build out their investment sale platform. And here we are five years later, I've got a team of close to three dozen people. Last year, we closed over 50 transactions. And then along with our capital markets group that does debt and equity, we were involved in over $2 billion in transactions. So that, that's kind of my brokerage history, but I love it. But what I'm also really passionate about is investing. So very early on in my career, and we can, I'm sure we'll get into the details on this, start investing as a limited partner. I went on to become a general partner in two real estate funds where we invested in over three dozen transactions with a total capitalization of about $350 million. And I remain an active investor today. And as you mentioned, part of that has been kind of sharing that knowledge through my podcast, The Insider's Edge to Real Estate Investing, which is also the name of my upcoming book. So I want to hear more about the book. My co-host, Robert Leonard, has recently published a book. It was a book on house hacking. And just talking to him and hearing some stories, it sounded like a pretty grueling process, the writing process itself. What made you want to write the book? And talk to us about that process, what it was like. I will tell you, this all started, the podcast too, right after COVID set on. And and you probably remember those dark days, kind of mid-2020. We're all sitting at home. We didn't know if we were going to be in this for weeks, months, years. And needless to say, I had a lot of free time on my hands and I'm a big fan of coaching. And I remember my coach at the time, Blaine Strickland, who wrote two great books, uh, Thrive and Adapt. He said, James, you want to look back on this time and just say, hey, you were able to kind of keep up on your emails and stay in touch or do you really want to move the needle and do something? He said, when else are you ever going to have the opportunity to do something? And from there... The podcast was born and out of that and the lessons learned, the idea was to do a book. And I also give big credit to Ryan Sturhant, who had written a real estate book. He's the top residential broker in the city, if not the world. 
And so he talked to me and helped introduce me to an agent who introduced me to uh, McGraw-Hill. But what I will also say is that I had a lot of help. A big part of my personal success has been building a great team, whether that's in brokerage, but also with this book process. And so it would be generous to say that I wrote this whole book myself. What the agent quickly did was introduce me to a writing partner. So I had a writing partner, Rachel Hartman, who writes for US News and World Report. And we collaborate on this book for months to get it ready. But you can actually go to my podcast and listen to the episodes where she interviewed me for 12 consecutive segments if it doesn't bore you too much. But that's where all the information was. We do an hour long interview and then she'd write a a chapter and then obviously I'd edit, add to it. But that was kind of how the book came to be. Had you always had a dream of being an author or writing a book or was it, as you said, it just kind of developed over COVID? Again, I was an English major. And one thing that I did enjoy was creative writing. I certainly was not good enough to make a career out of it, but I do a lot of writing in my day-to-day business. And I am happy that I have that degree and I'm pretty quick to, whether it's my monthly blog that I write up or just even composing a simple email, I think it's an important skill to have. So I'm I'm happy that I can kind of bring that passion together on on a subject that I've spent now close to 25 years along the way. And I think with the book, the reason why ultimately why I wrote it was there are a lot of great books out there. You, you mentioned one of your friends who wrote the house hacking book. There's a lot of books that deal with kind of specific aspects of the business. Maybe it's investing in multifamily, maybe it's investing in triple net or whatever it is. But I wanted a book that was really universal, that really tells you everything that you need to know from start to finish. And one thing that amazes me, and I think you might have mentioned, I do a lot of guest lecturing. So I've guest lectured at Columbia, Wharton, NYU. And whenever I speak to the the professor, I say, well, what's the book that you use? What do you assign to the students? And inevitably, there's not a book. There might be a handout or maybe some excerpt, but I really hope that this book will become the book for Primer to learn how to invest. And so that's the goal. And I hope it helps a lot of people find the same success that they love that I have in real estate investing. I wanted to talk more about the book. As you mentioned, you've taught at Fordham, you've taught at Columbia, Wharton. And if you weren't using your own book, are there any books that you would use to teach that class? Books that you've loved that have made a big impact on you? Yeah. I mean, again, there are a lot of books that have been written on real estate investing. And again, you need to kind of pull pieces from them or they might deal with certain aspects. Well, first of all, even though this is geared towards brokers, I think Rod Santamassimo, who is another great long-term coach of mine, he wrote a book called Knowing Isn't Doing. It's his latest book, which is fantastic. It's written for brokers in mind, but you can actually apply it to anything, including investing. Also, my friend Bo Berry, who's also a real estate broker, he wrote a book called Multifamily Investors Who Dominate. There's one other book I'm looking for the title. It's Building Legacy Wealth by Terry Moore, which I think is fantastic as well. What was that called? Building Legacy Wealth? Yes, from Terry Moore. Now, he writes specifically through the lens of investing in San Diego. I mean, again, you can apply it elsewhere, but my book, I I think, is a little bit more of a, a macro approach as opposed to he's really diving in and getting specific, which is super helpful too. I love the book you mentioned, Knowing Isn't Doing. That's a great title. Absolutely. Well, that's the thing. I mean, and there's a lot of people who are listening or watching this right now, and that's great. But my hope is that you'll take 
you know, maybe three or five actionable things, specific things that you can say, look, if I apply this to my business in the new year, I'm going to make an improvement and, and hopefully a big one. I know I've been guilty of that, just acquiring knowledge, just trying to get as much knowledge as possible. And at a certain point, you just have to jump in and, and do, you know, so it's, it's a great title. I'm also certainly a uh, James Clear fan and Atomic Habits. So I, I think once you've kind of figured out what are the specific things you're going to do, then it's how do you make it a habit and do it on a consistent basis? Yeah, I just interviewed a guy last week. He does a YouTube channel, but in the back of his office, it says get 1% better every day, which is a James Clear practice, just incremental changes each day, incremental improvements make a huge difference as you compound them. I wanted to talk about your early days when you started off in commercial sales right out of college from Colgate. It's been my experience that a lot of realtors and brokers don't get started in real estate investing for one reason or another. And that's kind of always been a head scratcher to me. They see a lot of deals, they see what's happening, but yet fail to invest or just just don't get started. Why do you think that is? And for you particularly, when did you first make that first jump into investing? I think you have to be careful about the conflict. There is an inherent conflict about being a broker and also being an investor. Okay. That doesn't mean you can't do it if you do it in the right way. But I think when you're starting off in your career, if you are starting as a broker, it takes years to figure out the business. And I I would say, look, don't start investing right off the bat because it's important. You'll do a disservice to your brokerage business. You'll do a disservice to your investing. I think brokerage, you really need to spend at least three to six months just to figure out how it all works and then start building up your book, bringing on listings, working on sales, waiting for them to close. But I think once you have enough brokerage experience under your belt, I think it is appropriate to start looking at investing, but you need to be very careful one of the rules that I've, I've always lived by is that I do not invest in deals that I broker. And I should also say, whenever someone calls me and says, James, I want to sell my property, my brokerage hat is on first and foremost. If I was sitting here cherry picking which deals I wanted to broker and which deals I wanted to buy, I wouldn't get very far. And I would also have a horrible reputation because what is that saying? And then once I bring out listings, investors would say, well, hey, James, if it's such a great deal, why didn't you buy it? Or if I'm a seller, I might say, well, hey, did I get a, a real fair valuation from James? Is he just trying to lowball me so I, he can turn around and buy it later? It's just, there's so many risks there that are they're inherent with that conflict. So the, the cleanest thing to do as an investor, if you're a broker, if you want to buy deals direct, buy them from other brokers. Okay, that way that seller's represented by another broker. They have their own representation. Clearly, you're not working on the the listing. That's definitely the easiest way. The other thing and what I did with the two funds, which was River Oak MYC 1 and 2, is we didn't actually buy properties at the asset level. We put out JV equity for value-add deals. If I'm coming in as equity as opposed to buying at the asset level, that's also one step further removed from the process. And even then, we would not invest in deals that we brokered. If a sponsor came to me and said, hey, James, I've got this great opportunity. I bought it off market. I bought it through another broker. Great. Let's talk about how we can team up, provide equity for you to do this. And that way, it's really, I find, the best way to go about it. That makes sense. It keeps it clean. Talk to us, though, about the early days of your portfolio, what you initially were doing, what you were buying, what interested you the most, what strategy you pursued. 
I think for a lot of us, it starts with the place that you live. So whether it was buying my first apartment in the city, buying the apartment next door, combining them. I don't even know if I wrote about that in the book, but that worked out pretty well. Of course, in that case, I bought it because that's, that was our, our place to live. So it wasn't really with an investor hat on. Say more about that. So you bought one apartment. Were you living in it as well? Yes. And then we had a one bedroom. And when my, my wife was pregnant with our first child, we, we needed more space. So we knocked on, literally knocked on the door next door to our apartment and ended up buying that apartment and combining them. So learned a little bit about construction and rode the market on the way up. But I would say the first more investment that we did was then we decided we wanted a weekend place. Again, I work here in New York City. We were living there at the time and we really liked this town, Cold Spring, that was up on the Hudson River, right across the river from West Point. And we bought a three family. And I found very early on, you know, we could live in one unit. We were only going there on the weekends and the rent from the other two apartments covered the rent. And I think we bought that for $315,000. We probably spent $50,000 renovating it. And when we were done with it, we sold it for $550,000. Not only do we have a place to live for free for a couple of years, we ended up profiting from the sales. That was kind of maybe my, my first real experience investing on my own. But once I really started participating in larger investments in New York, which is really the area of my expertise is kind of where I, I think my investing took off. And the first investment I ever made with a client was, and I had met him through NYU, young developer at the time by the name of Matt Blesso from Blesso Development. And I, I met him. He knew I was a broker. He called me up and he said, James, I've got this great property in contract down in Greenwich Village. I think I got a great deal for it. Do you think you can flip the contract for me? Meaning as the broker, I was going to go find another buyer who was going to step into his shoes, close the deal and pay him for the contract. And so he was in contract for about a million eight, a million nine. And I had offers within a couple of weeks for two and a half, $2.6 million. So there was no question that he got a great deal on this. And he said it's kind of time came for him to step up and execute on this. He said, you know, James, I really appreciate all your effort, but I'm really excited about this opportunity. It's too good to let go. I've got a business plan for this. I'm not going to flip it. As disappointed as I was as a broker, because obviously as a broker, you only get paid on a sale. I asked him, I said, well, hey, Matt, are you taking any investors for this? And he said, well, as it turns out, I am. I'm raising money and I'm going to go out. And I think at the time he was raising like $600,000 and I signed on as his first investor. And it turned out, it's still to this day, my best investment ever. I mean, this was probably 20 years ago now. He ends up condoing the, the building, selling the units upstairs for over $5 million. And obviously there was conversion costs associated with that, but I got all my money back like times two or three and we were into the retail for free. So at this point, I have all my money back, infinite returns. And fast forward five, 10 years later, we put a restaurant, really trendy restaurant in that ground floor space. We end up selling just the ground floor for over $4 million. So we sell the ground floor for more than double what we paid for the whole building. And again, we have no money into the deal. We take that money, 1031 exchange it into a multifamily deal in Brooklyn. And maybe we just got lucky, but turns out that the building is right next to a development site. We sell the air rights off of that, I think, for another million dollars. We still have the building in Brooklyn that's cash flowing. So it's just like the gift that keeps giving. 
What about the, the first investment where you and your wife were living? Do you still own that? No, no, no. We stole that after we moved out of the city. We didn't need a weekend place anymore. But again, I, I figured I was into that for probably about 350 and we sold it for somewhere in the mid 500. No, so I meant the apartment. The, when the, the apartment. Oh, no. The yeah. The apartment we sold too. That worked out too. I think that was another one where we doubled the money. Although you could look back and say that apartment's probably worth double that, but you, you can't look back. We, we used the money to buy a place up in Connecticut. It worked out. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, Explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. I wanted to do a deeper dive into your book. I wanted to get into that further here. What does the book focus on and what are you hoping like the top two or three takeaways are that you'd want your readers to walk away with? The whole point of the book is I want this to be able to tell you everything you need to know to get into real estate investing. So my goal, Patrick, is if you knew nothing about real estate investing, maybe you just sold your tech company, you're sitting on tens of millions of dollars, you want some diversification. How do you do it? So not knowing anything about real estate, where do you start, right? And I really do believe this book step-by-step is going to tell you what you need to know. It starts by talking about the different types of real estate, whether it's multifamily, whether it's retail, office, development, development, which I tell new investors steer clear of. But it talks about, first of all, you need to be honest with yourself 
to really evaluate how much time do you have to devote to this and what's your risk tolerance. So if you're someone who's working 50, 60 hours a week at another job, being a general partner, going in and repositioning an apartment building and managing 10, 20, 100 units is probably not what you should be doing. You know, if you're just looking for something passive, maybe triple net is a good option for you, or maybe you want to be a limited partner. There's nothing wrong with that where, I mean, I just got through telling you one of my first investments, which happened to be the best. I was a limited partner. I wasn't even a general partner. So it does talk about what to look for. You asked about what are some of the most important lessons in the book. Very early on, I talk about this is a people business. It's very important to have success to make sure you have the right team in place, a team of specialists who have experience. I talk about in the book, like if you are working with an attorney, make sure that's an attorney who is a transactional real estate attorney who has worked on uh, helping their clients acquire that type of multifamily. Don't go to your you know trust and estate attorney, right? What's interesting is the first podcast that I ever did, the first interview I ever did with, with Bruce Ratner, prolific developer. He's built over 50 ground up projects in New York City, the latest one being the Barclays Arena. He's a part owner in the Nets. And I, I asked him, I said, you know, Bruce, what was the secret to your success? And he could, just kept saying, it's about the people. I went back and I counted the number of times that he's said people in a one hour interview, people or teams, over 50 times. He used people or team almost once a minute, which is hard to imagine, but that's what it's about because, you know, Patrick, I'm sure when you're doing your investing, you know, if you're one person, you're not going to get very far, but it's really those professionals, whether it's cultivating a great relationship with your sales broker, who's going to find you that opportunity, or maybe it's your mortgage broker who's going to get you that debt. Maybe it's the contractor who's going to help you reposition the asset. Maybe it's your third party manager. It's really about the the people and the team. So I, I think that is essential. But I think also what I talk about early in the book, which is beyond just the making sure you pick the asset class and risk profile that's right for you, is to become a specialist, right? And just like I talked about when I started off as a broker, you know, my territory was the Chelsea neighborhood in Manhattan, which was about 50, 60 broker, 50, 60 blocks. And I spent three months just getting to know every single thing about that neighborhood, every single sale, where rents were, rezones, new developments, right? And what I found was even though I was incredibly green, brand new to the business, by studying that neighborhood for three months, I knew more than the generalist brokers who had been at this for decades. You know, there's that old saying, jack of all trades, master of none, right? And I think that applies. So I think for your listeners, Figure out what your thesis is, what is your business plan, and then study it and become the expert. I think that's some great advice. I just did an interview last week. This guy that had the 1%, get 1% better every day, his whole theory was just to focus strictly on one zip code. And that's all he did. Every morning, he'd study Zillow, knew all the listings, just as you said. He knew where rents were. He knew what things were selling at. And he knew like something was mispriced. He'd jump on it pretty quickly. That's really great advice to focus. And with the whatever, whatever time frame, you can become really, really knowledgeable compared to 90% of other people that are just kind of all over the board. I wanted to go a little further into, you had mentioned the fund you did, River Oak. Talk to us more about what that is and the value add deal that you've done two value add deals, I believe. Well, there were two funds. As a broker, this is now 10 years into the business and I'm seeing all my clients make tremendous amounts of money. 
And even though, like I said, I wasn't going to be buying 10, $20 million properties, what I noticed was the toughest thing for our clients was not necessarily finding the opportunity or executing. The number one thing they struggled with was raising equity because in a, a strange way, it's actually easier to get a $20 million equity check than a $2 million equity check because what you have is all these institutional investors that for them, it's not a good use of their time to focus on the smaller stuff. So they're writing larger checks. And yet it's a mismatch because you have all this institutional capital focused at the large transactions. And what we found in New York City was 95% of the transactions were actually under $50 million. And yet it seemed like 95% of the equity was focused on $50 million plus. So you have this complete mismatch. So we said, how do we raise capital and provide institutional equity for emerging sponsors where we can go out and put together a portfolio. And so, you know, and again, we knew how to find clients and that fund, it was more about finding sponsors who had great opportunities than the deal itself. Because again, we weren't buying the property. The sponsor was bringing us the opportunity with the business plan saying, hey, I need two, three, five million dollars of equity for this. We raised $26 million for our first fund. We did this with from high net worth individuals. They were investing anywhere from $250,000 up. And then for the second fund, we raised another almost equal amount to about $24 million. We had $50 million of equity that they redeployed in about three dozen transactions for a total capitalization of about $350 million. I really, I've enjoyed it because it's a way to participate as an investor, but not having to be on the front line, being a general partner, having to do that day to day. What are your coming goals for the year, you know, this year and the years ahead? I know you work with a coach. You mentioned that. Do you set New Year's resolutions and plans for your investment goals? And I'm curious if you can share with us what those are. I'm smiling because I'm still refining them. And, and here we are, uh, January 9th. So I, I better get on the ball. But no, I, from the brokerage standpoint, we are meticulous. We track everything. We know what everybody had for breakfast that morning. We're very, very focused on pipeline, how many presentations, how many listings, how many sales, how many revenue, what are the conversion rates. So we are very, very focused on that. Last year was a big year for me as far as with the exposure piece to it to help the business, help my investing, obviously the podcast, a lot of focus on the book. I'm still, with the book coming out shortly, spending a lot of time getting the word out on that. So that is definitely going to be an important piece to it. But I think for this year, what I'm thinking about, and this might actually seem like kind of going in the opposite direction, but I spent so much time focusing on the digital presence, the social media, and, and that, that's a machine now. I've got a great team to help with that. But I want to get back to spending more time with people one-on-one. -on -one. You can have a great reach. And formats like this are awesome. We can hopefully help out a lot of people. But for whatever the expression is, kind of a, a mile wide, an inch deep, as opposed to really cultivating those relationships. Because whether it's brokering or whether it's investing, I look and I see that it's probably 100, 125 people. In fact, Blaine Strickland talks about that in his book, Thrive, about the top 125. I mean, you really can't get to know more than 125 people that well, at least for business. Let's really, you know, spend more meaningful time. So I don't know if that works for you as, as a, a resolution, but that's definitely a habit that I need to get back into doing. 
It's a good one. I mean, as you mentioned, it's a people business. Relationships are critical. So it sounds like that's a pretty important goal to focus on the one-on-one relationships. I want to hear more about your podcast. It's the same as your book, right? It's the Insider's Edge to Real Estate. You mentioned Bruce Ratner. What are the one or two guests that have made the biggest impact on you that you've had on the, on the show? Who are they and what were the biggest lessons that you've learned from them? Wow. Maybe not to uh, ruin the surprise or maybe I'm breaking it here on your podcast first, but I am planning on having a second book that will be coming out next, which is Real Estate Investing, The Keys to Success, where I do just that. I take my favorite 15, 20 interviews and then really look at what was that one skill what was that one trait? What was it that separated them and, and gave them that that advantage? So I don't know if those 15, 20 per se were, I love them all in their, their own way. I guess it's like picking a favorite child. But I think what those interviews have in common is I interviewed legends in the business who've been doing this for decades. So obviously, Bruce Radner has been doing this a long time. But I also, you know, I found it very fascinating speaking to Rick Clark. I mean, he was the CEO of Brookfield Properties, the largest owner in the world. And same thing. I kept asking, you know, Rick, how did you expand when you came to Brookfield, you know, this kind of Canadian company, you, you opened up their New York office, you know, fast forward, now they're in every major country. How'd you do it? You just said, hey, it's all about the people, getting the right boots on the ground, getting the right partners. So I like that a lot. But I also like what Don Peebles had to say. And he's written two books, which are great too. And I know we're going to talk a little bit later about why to invest in this market. There's a lot of uncertainty. Rates are going up. He said, my best investments of all time I made when the market was down, when a lot of buyers were on the sidelines. So I like what he had to say about that. I love Mary Ann Gilmartin, the interview with her and what it took to just get these deals done. When you're focused and if you're the kind of person where you get discouraged by an obstacle, this is probably not the right business for you. I mean, there's going to be things that come up. These deals go left, right, sideways, every which way you got to stick with it. And she talks about getting this deal done, this major development in Brooklyn with a bond offering that had to get done December 31st. And they had to open up the post office at two, three in the morning to get a, a signature to get the, the lender to funds. They're all great. And I, and I think. For you know some of the young guns out there, as I as I call them, the one with David Shorenstein, he gives an interview. I mean, he this guy is a canvasser, is unbelievable. I went to his office once, and he had like twenty people in his office. They're all sitting there writing handwritten letters. I'm like David, what are these people doing? He's like, they're canvassing. We're sending out letters to owners that say, sell your property, save a brokerage fee. And he racked up like a hundred properties in Brooklyn buying them that way. And he sold them as a portfolio to related one of the biggest companies out there. I also like what Stephen Kashanian from Closed is doing, Closed with the K, really creating a brand. Uh, I think Peak Capital is the same way. I, I interviewed Alex Cascal on that. And again, they've really been able to create a company with a brand that not only helps brokers to think of them when they have an opportunity, but also investors. So I mentioned you're my seventh or eighth interview, so I'm relatively new to the podcast game. What's been your favorite part of the podcast and your least favorite part of doing it? Well, the favorite part is just meeting new people. Initially, when I started the podcast, I had probably 100 people I wanted to interview, which really helps because I I know those people. So I don't have to do as much prep because I already know their story. I can speak with them from personal experience. So that's been great. But now two years running, over 150 episodes are coming up on that shortly. And 
you get to meet a lot of interesting people. And I, I would say I'm still learning. Every time I do one of these interviews, sure, I, I hope I'm helping, you know, the people who are downloading it. But every time I'm picking up stuff and I'm taking notes also, we're all learning. That's what I love about this business as well. I mean, as far as, you know, challenges and everything, I think it's just can be tough sometimes to find the time. I, again, it was one thing when I started this up during COVID and I had a lot of free time. Now, you know, it's all hands on deck with this market, trying to get things done and sometimes just prioritizing and making sure that I get a new episode out every week. It's tough. I wanted to talk about what have you done, whether it's your education at Colgate, getting your real estate broker, you know, the broker's license reading a certain book, attending a conference, maybe mentorship, coaching that you've done, whatever it is, what's the one thing that you've done that's had the biggest impact on your success in real estate? Well, I think this is definitely a business that you learn by doing and also having great mentors. So I was just so lucky and it was luck that I started off working with with Bob and Paul and just sitting with them on an open floor plan. I mean, we were out in cubes and I just listened and absorbed and absorbed. And so I think for those of you looking to get into this, find a great mentor and spend time with them, volunteer your time, say, hey, look, I want to just come in shadow. I actually have someone in my office today who just said, hey, I want to learn more about your business and what you're doing. I said, hey, come hang out and spend time with me today. And I think just exposing yourself to mentors out there, and I think also making it a two-way street. I get asked to be a mentor a lot, but oftentimes it's just you know that person asking me, hey, James, how can I get my next job? What advice do you have for me? And I find that the really good mentees, they realize it's a two-way street. And I had someone who I'm mentoring now who is at Brew College. And as soon as we sat down at our initial meeting, he's been sending me information. He, he set me up with the Brew College Real Estate Club and just trying to be helpful. That's good advice. It can often go just one way and it's got to be a two-way street. Did you have a training program that you were involved in initially? Well, for brokerage, for sure. Yeah. When we, Massey and Ackle, one thing that made it very successful is they had a very uh, regimented system. In fact, the fact that I studied that territory, had to learn everything about it. At the end of three months, there was actually a review board and they came in and they grilled me on how much I actually knew about the area. I mean, which was, I really had to step it up and, and show, show my knowledge. I mean, today, with our brokerage team, and I run a, a smaller team, we've got three dozen people here, so we don't have a formal training program, but most people on my team, they have at least five years experience in the business, so they don't start from scratch. They at least have an understanding of the business, and they, again, they learn by listening in. We have a team meeting every single morning where we go over pipeline and what we're working on. I wanted to talk more about the importance of building a team when I first got involved in real estate, I don't think I realized how important building a strong team is. I've, I've always been involved in like playing individual sports, whether tennis or golf, just a solo endeavor. But real estate is not that way. I think a lot of new investors kind of are in a similar boat where they don't realize the importance of building out a team. What have you found to be the most important aspects of how to build a strong team? How would you go about doing that if you're a new guy? maybe you don't have a lot of resources. How can you go about building a, a team that you need to succeed in this? Again, even starting off, whether it's offering internships, there's so many college students out there that are super talented. They're looking for experience. And even if you pay a minimum wage or, you know, in some cases, these, these schools actually give stipends for them to come in and study, like that should not be a barrier. 
Also, if it's getting an assistant, there's that old expression. If you're, if you don't have an assistant, you are the assistant. I mean, you now have virtual assistants that you can get for a very reasonable rates. I mean, I, I think it comes back to, and this is what Rod Santamassimo talked about, like calculate what your time is worth. You know, so for brokerage, that's a little easier. I can figure out what I made the last year divided by how many hours I work. And then the question is, if you're doing something, is that worth the time that you're spending on it? And so it's like, well, sure, I can, I can book my tickets if I'm taking a family vacation or, or better yet, a work conference. But isn't it more valuable if I can get someone to help me with that who's frankly a lot better at it than I am? And then I can spend my time maybe cultivating relationships or, or doing something like this. I recently interviewed, I mentioned the guy that focused just on one zip code. And I wanted to talk a little further about the role of specialization within real estate. You focus just on one area in, in New York. Would you, is that the way you would go about it? I know you've got three sons, maybe. I think that's correct, right? Yes, three correct. Yes. Would you recommend they just focus on one, one aspect of real estate, study one niche, or would you say, get a broad view of the whole option, the different options that are available in real estate, figure out, try different things and figure out what you're good at. It's tough to know for a, a guy just getting started where he should specialize. Do you know what I mean? It's a great question. And the answer is both. Because on one hand, you have to have an overall knowledge of the whole process. Okay. So not to keep trying to sell my book, but that, that's part of it to say, okay, this is pretty much very high level what you need to do, know from start to finish. These are the different players on the, the team. And I do hope to collaborate on a third book eventually that really dives into the specifics of each of those roles. But you do need to have an understanding. But once you've landed on what you want to do, whether it's a broker, whether it's an investor, then yeah, you've got to specialize. And that doesn't have to be on geography. It could be an asset class. It could be a business plan. could be within triple net. I'm going to just get to know fast food. I mean, wh- whatever it is, but get specific and become the expert on that space. And it's got to be niche enough that you can actually cover it and get to know everything. Whereas if you just said, hey, I want to do industrial and I want to do it you know, up and down the East Coast, that's like way too broad to figure out. Are any of your sons interested in real estate? My oldest is graduating high school and he's already asking me for a job. And if he's listening, I, I would tell him that although I, I would love to have him on board, I think it's important that, first of all, he goes into college with an open mind. Like I said, I didn't even know real estate was a, a thing until my senior year. And there's a lot of exciting things out there, but you got to do what you're passionate about, right? I mean, he sees what I do, you know, he's come in to visit the office and he seems to love it, but you got to just make sure. And it's not uncommon for someone right out of college starting out to try a bunch of different jobs. And I think that's also why internships are a great opportunity. Try things that you don't like. I mean, I I, uh, spent one summer working for, it was corporate America, one of the big car manufacturers out there. And this was a super plush job. I mean, we were out playing golf at least once a week and it was great, but there was kind of that ceiling where it's like, okay, well, you're going to sign on and you're going to be working nine to five for the rest of your life. And you can kind of rise within the ranks of middle management. And there's nothing wrong. Like some people just say like, I like the security. I like the lifestyle. It's great. But I knew I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. My grandfather who I talk uh, about at the beginning of my book, he started off as a used car salesman and ended up owning his own dealerships. He sat on the board of GM 
you know, but again, that's what he was passionate. He loved sales. He loved getting to know people. What is sales? It's really kind of understanding, you know, you're helping them. You're putting yourself in your shoes, whether you're selling cars or you're selling $10 million buildings. Did you have any other family members that were involved in real estate investing or were, are you kind of first generation real estate guy? My uncle was, he might as well have been mayor of Minneapolis and he started his own boutique shop, advisory shop. He did leasing, but he also worked on some of the biggest deals. If I'm not mistaken, he helped the Vikings secure the land for their stadium. And even though he was very focused on Minneapolis, he had great relationships. And when I, I made one phone call, due diligence on this firm I was going to start for. And uh, Russ made some calls. He said, hey, these guys are top shelf and you're in good hands. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. At the Investors Podcast, we were talking a little bit earlier before the, we started recording. We were founded on Warren Buffett value-based investing principles. Why do you think investors can gain a greater edge? Your book's called The Insider's Edge. Why do you think they can gain a greater edge in real estate than they can in traditional stock investing? 
It's also something that I talk about very early on in the book. And look, there's been a lot of advances made with real estate data. There's a lot of information that's out there that's accessible. But at the end of the day, it's still a very inefficient marketplace. If we want to go buy a stock right now, you can find at any minute what a stock is trading for. And we all have the same information. In fact, I'm assuming I have the worst information, right? Because I'm just a retail consumer. Whereas real estate, there's no rule that an owner has to sell their property for the highest price. You can have two buildings sell on the same block and they might look the same and one might go for two to three times the other property. And that might be because the tenancy, the condition, but it also might be because how the property was marketed. Maybe the property that sold for a higher price used a professional brokerage firm to maximize exposure and maximize the price. Whereas that owner down the street thought that they were saving themselves a brokerage fee and they knew what they were doing. You know, just like that building that my uh, first partner, Matt Blusso, bought. You know, I'm sure when he bought that at a million eight, a million nine, I'm sure that owner said, Hey, I got this guy to pay me a big price. And clearly he left in that case five, six hundred thousand dollars on the table. I just think what's really interesting is there are a lot of inefficiencies that you can capitalize on. And it's probably a blessing that there isn't an hourly quote for real estate. I mean, there are companies that are trying to solve for that. I think it's certainly interesting tokenizing real estate, trying to make it more liquid because that is one of the drawbacks is we are not in a, it's not a liquid investment, but there's certainly platforms that are trying to solve for that, which I think is uh, interesting. I've interviewed a couple guys recently that, that are involved in democratizing real estate and tokenizing it. It's an interesting concept for sure. I wanted to talk about today's market. There's a lot of buyers that are just sitting on the sidelines, maybe waiting out this period of uncertainty. Interest rates are up. Inflation's obviously up. Do you have any good advice on how to deal with periods of uncertainty that we're in when there's like a, just a growing sense of, of unease in the market? I love that your podcast embraces the teachings of Buffett. And I've certainly referenced him several times in this market. And I'll I'll probably get the quote wrong, but being fearful when those are greedy and being greedy when those are fearful. I mean, I, I think that applies right now. I mean, we've seen rates go up at an unprecedented, if not, you know, the last 20 years. And as a result, a lot of buyers are on the sidelines. Buyers are assuming, hey, if I wait six months, nine months, pricing's gonna move in my favor. Well, that might be correct. But don't forget, we're also dealing with supply and demand. And if all the buyers pile back into the market, you're going to have a lot more competition. One thing that I also talk a lot about my book, and so try, try to remember, you know, what, what are the three things that you want to take away from this? We talked about the people, the teams. We talked about the special specialization. But here's a really specific one when you're thinking about buying property. Seller's motivation. Why is someone selling? Okay. We were just talking about in our sales meeting this morning that we got hired by an estate and they're donating all the proceeds to charity. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to do the best job we can to get the highest price, but we're selling no matter what. When you're buying, ask the broker, why is the seller selling? And if they say, well, hey, we thought it'd be a good time or maybe we could still get a, a decent price for it. That's really a discretionary seller. That's someone who does not have to sell. Where an estate, partnership dispute, distress, Those are opportunities where someone really has to transact and there's less competition out there today. That's where the opportunities are going to lie. I like to talk to, I don't want to insult you, but older guys, you and I both older guys that have lived through 2008. I like to hear about people's experience of 2008. What was that like for you? How did you handle it? And then how would you compare today's market to 2008? Do you see any similarities at all? 
there are similarities in that you have buyers on the sidelines, certainly for different reasons. And then also we were hit with a lot of distress and where there are challenges, there are opportunities. But I, I would say that going from 2007 to 2009, there has been, I mean, you look back then here in New York, sales volume dropped 90%. Whereas you look at what's happened here in New York City, and we haven't released these figures yet, but it's somewhere in the ballpark of a 49% decline in dollar volume year over year. So that that starts to tell you something. I mean, it's not, not 90%, but sales volume looks like it's going to be cut in half this year. I think the important thing is to just keep showing up. I think what I was doing in 2009 as a broker, and we didn't know where the market was headed or when it was going to come back, but I just kept showing up and I kept studying what was going on. And at the time, I had never even sold a loan before, but we ended up doing a tremendous amount of work for the banks, selling bad loans. And 2010 turned out to be one of our best years ever. I don't know if we're going to see something as drastic where as drastic of a decline, and then all of a sudden, you know, tons of distress that gets flushed out, meaning lots of business. But there's certainly going to be similarities with, again, challenging times, opportunities. And I think the lesson is just keep showing up and you never know when things are going to turn. With rates up, do you recommend just sitting on the sideline and maybe hoarding cash or gathering cash to jump in later on down the road? Or where do you see opportunities? I don't think you can pick and choose, jump in another market or not. If you stop studying the market, you're going to miss opportunities. Going back to seller's motivation. I mean, we sold a building in the village and this was right before COVID. We had it on the market. We had a contract out for $32 million. COVID hits. I mean, who knows? We thought it was the end of the world. And 60 days later, we ended up contract closing on the property for $22 million. Granted, this is a very scary time. We had no idea. Maybe $22 million was the right number at the time. But how many sellers would have dropped their pricing expectations by $10 million in 60 days if it wasn't a motivated seller? So that, that's the reason why you got to keep looking. I'm curious what New York office space is like. Do you see any creative, adaptive reuse of office space? What's happening in the office market? We're trying. The challenge is that First of all, you've got zoning. So the building has to be located in an area that actually allows residential. But then the big question is, does the floor plate lend itself to that? A lot of these office buildings have big, deep floor plates and you can't even have the proper light and air unless if you cut off the back of the building or core it out, which might not make it worth it. And the last part is really the economics. In New York, because the real estate taxes are so high, To incentivize development in the past, uh, the city, the state has had to offer tax incentives. I think the same thing is going to have to happen if they want to see more of these conversions happen. What's the vacancy rate right now in office space in New York? Uh, It's about 20%, which is about 100 million square feet available, which is a pretty crazy amount to think about. You've been a broker for a long time. What would you say sets apart the most successful ones that you've seen in the field from just kind of the average or mediocre people that you've seen? Well, I'm going to borrow this from Barbara Corcoran because I heard her say this and I think it's a great, I agree with it, which is it's how you handle failure, how you handle objections. This again is a business where you're going to have a lot of deals fall through. And if you're investing, you're going to have things that don't go your way. You can't just have one or two things in the pipeline and assume you're going to be successful. This is a numbers game. You have to know that's all part of the process. And then if a deal falls through or things don't go your way, you're just that much closer to the next one that will. 
You mentioned your use of a coach and I interviewed a gentleman last week who who's a real estate investor, but also does men's financial coaching, success coaching. And I've not used a coach before, but I'm very interested in, and want to learn more about it. Talk to us further about your experience of using a coach, reaching your goals and keeping you accountable. Well, I think it's the same reason that I have a trainer when I go to the gym. Can I go and do I know the exercises by now? Probably. But if, I, if I'm going to show up and if I don't have the accountability, probably not. So I think at the very least, I think to check in with someone, I do it once a week, 30 minutes, just, hey, how's the pipeline? What's going on? What do we need to think about? Have a sounding board. It's what Rod Santamassimo talks about working on your business as opposed to in your business. So if you're not really taking a step back and looking at the big picture, you're in the deal grind, you're just one foot in front of the other, you might be missing the big picture out there. I know that you're really into David Goggins. I think you were you read his book, uh, what is it, Can't Hurt Me? Or? Can't Hurt Me, yes. And I wanted to discuss further the importance of proper mindset. There's a lot of common hurdles or what are some of the common hurdles or mental barriers that prevent a lot of new investors or even new brokers from getting started or succeeding in endeavors? I think the number one thing that holds investors back is fear. And so that might be warranted in the sense that maybe you haven't done the proper research or you don't have, uh, you're not prepared. But that being said, you're never going to be 100% ready. Another, you asked about favorite interviews. I interviewed Jordan Vogel and I, I kind of took uh, the, the Nike uh, slogan. Hopefully they don't come after me for it. Uh, just do it. But his, his whole point was a deal is never going to be perfect. You're going to do as much work as you can. Get it as close as possible. But he said, every time I've closed on something, I feel like I overpaid the next day. So he, his point was just go do it. Right. And so I think the fear, whether it's, you know, it's got to be perfect or whatever holds a lot of people back. But I think also some of it is understandable. I mean, if you're stepping up and signing a contract and you don't have a strong capital partner, you don't have banking relationships. No, you shouldn't do it. And so that's why one of the most important members of the team that I talk about is having a great partner. And maybe for your first deal, it's bringing the investment to an experienced developer operator where you can go in and say, look, I'm bringing this opportunity. Can you give me sweat equity in the deal? I would just learn. I would like to kind of watch this from start to finish. And you've got this great investor based and lender relationships and team to execute on this. Because I think without that, I think sometimes that, that fear can be warranted. For sure. So that's you'd recommend a younger person to try to partner up with somebody with financial resources or resources. And what's one piece of advice that you hear the real estate gurus on online or Twitter, social media that you hear often that you just don't agree with? I shouldn't say I don't agree with it, but I certainly don't understand it. And I'm starting to do more on Twitter, but I'm, but I'm hearing about how all, all this money is being raised on Twitter. And it gets into kind of risky territory when you're making certain statements about what you can invest in, what the deal is going to look like. On one hand, when you do a traditional syndication, private placement, you look at these books that the attorneys put out for accredited investors and you say, why is this really necessary? But there are a lot of inherent risks with this stuff. I think why a lot of these traditional channels, you know, that's the way that a lot of the business is still getting done. But hey, if there's other ways to raise capital by going out there through social media, I think it's interesting. I, it's just got to be done in the right way. Are you on real estate Twitter? Is that something that you're part of? I spend the most powerful social media platform for me is LinkedIn for sure. And then Instagram. But I am starting to spend time on Twitter just because that's where people are. So I'm watching it for sure. 
It seems like it. It's where I do a lot of my research for guests. It's it's really been a, a great resource and it's big education as well on Twitter. I think it's a... Oh, for information, for sure. I just, again, when it comes to raising capital, you got to be very careful about what you're saying and how you document things. For sure. Looking into the next few years, where are you seeing the biggest opportunities and trends that are that's exciting you? Well, I just wrote a white paper, so maybe I'll just direct people to uh, Real Estate Weekly. You can Google my name and, and find it. But yeah, there's a lot of things. I think the challenge of financing deals today, we might see the return of seller financing. So if the bank's only going to give you a 50% loan, I think sellers could help bridge the gap. I still, you know, we're talking asset classes. I, I really like retail right now. Retail's had a huge resurgence. I mean, so is multifamily. I mean, you got to just buy it at the right price, obviously. Talking about office conversions and how to do that. So yeah, I, I, I list out about eight ideas on investment themes that I like. The office conversions interest me. My wife and I just bought a building. She's a therapist, mental health therapist. And we do, I don't know if you have salon lofts in New York City, basically a loft or a space for hairdressers that, that are rented out space, you know, individually that are rented out and they do really I'm se- well. I'm selling one right now. Okay. Okay. So you've heard of them. So we've got the same concept. It's we, it's salon lofts, but for mental health therapists. And I love it. And what I will tell you is the one that we're selling is completely full. So all this concern about, well, are people going to come back to the office? Like when you're dealing with a therapist, and I guess you can do some of that online, although I prefer to do that in person. Certainly to go to a stylist, you, that, that needs to happen in person. So I, I think that's interesting. Anything that involves having to do something in person seems to be uh, a good long-term user of real estate. It's the same for therapy. Most people want to do it in person. So this is our second one. The first one's 100% rented and we've had demand. So we bought a second one and you know we're doing a conversion now and renovating it and we'll see how it goes. James, this has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed this. I'm super excited to read your book. When is it being released? Can it be ordered on Amazon now? So the plan is for the end of this month, you can go pre-order it right now. So if you go to Amazon and you search for the Insider's Edge to Real Estate Investing, you can definitely pre-order it there. Or if you're part of a company or you want a bulk order, you can also go to jamesnelson.com. That's where you can find all my stuff, the podcast, white papers, video series, and you can arrange for bulk orders there. Anything else you'd like to add as we wrap things up here for our listeners? No, I just, I think it's great that everyone is taking this time to invest in themselves. I mean, we talked about coaching. I mean, this is a form of it, right? If you're listening to a great podcast, you're taking the information in. I think the important thing is to quote my friend Rod Santamassimo, which is knowing isn't doing. So really think back to what are, you know, a couple of things that you found that were hopefully interesting in this interview and make them a habit. What would you say one actionable thing is for a listener to do like today? Well, I think from now on, whenever you buy property, just ask, what's the seller's motivation? Really get the story. That's a great question. And so often it's just, you don't ask, people don't ask it. You'd be surprised how rarely I'm asked. Aside from your personal website, is there any other way listeners can get in touch with you? You can definitely go to uh, search me on Avis and Young and you can see everything that we're selling in the, the New York area. Yeah, we're very active there as well. But yeah, uh, my handles are James Nelson NYC. You can see the stuff we're posting on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. James, thanks so much for being with us today. Really enjoyed this. Thanks so much for having me. Best of luck to you all. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. 
Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.